um, we thank God for bringing us together and uh, just um, bringing our hearts to Him as we think about what Christ has done for us and we think about the resurrection of, of Christ and its implication in our lives. Uh, let me welcome our visitors. If you're a first-time visitor, uh, welcome. Um, I see a visitor here. Uh, um, welcome. We'll get to know you after, after church. Uh, feel at home. <coughs> Excuse me. Welcome to Central Baptist Church. Um, so this morning, as we think about the resurrection, I want to um, take you to First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one, and we'll look at verses three and verse up until verse nine. First Peter chapter one, verse three up until verse nine. And the the the, the theme or the the subject of my sermon is because he lives because he lives first peter chapter 1 verse 3 to 9 let us take this time and present it to the lord in prayer then we'll continue with the word of god our dear heavenly father our lord and god we want to come before you we want to thank you for christ our lord we want to thank you that because he has risen from the dead, we have life in you. We are made right with you. As we hear the word today, bring our hearts to you. Shape us, Lord, to be a people that honor you, to be a people that are filled with joy and delight in your word. May you be praised in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. When we think about Easter, or as uh, we're thinking about the, the weekend of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it's a big celebration in the Christian church. But we must ask ourselves the question, why is that the case? What, what is it about this day that causes us to rejoice so much? What is it about this day that causes us to sing hallelujah about the resurrection of Christ, about this event of the rising of Christ from the dead? As we look at God's word this morning, I hope you'll come to know and embrace the, the answer to this question. This morning, I want to show you two reasons why we celebrate Easter. Two reasons why we celebrate Easter. Turn your Bibles, as I said, to First uh, Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one, and then we'll look at verse three up until verse nine. I read from the ESV. Follow me as I read God's word. One of the things that we prize here at church is the word of God being central to all that we do. So as I read God's word, as we hear God's word, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And I want you to respond by saying thanks be to God after reading the word. I read from the ESV, let us hear what God has to say to us this morning. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. This message is divided into, into two parts. And these two parts give us two reasons why we celebrate Easter. The, the, the first part has to do with the hope of the believer. And that's found in, in verses 3 to verse 5. The second part has to do with the joy of the believer. And that's found in verses 6 to verse 9. So we'll divide our time first by looking at the hope of, of, of the believer. Then we'll look at the joy of the believer. So my, my sermon my this morning is simple. Here it is in, in one sentence. Because he lives, we can have hope and joy. Because he lives, we can have hope and joy. And that's the reason we celebrate Easter. I pray that each and every one of you here this morning will come to see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only basis for hope and joy. And let's begin uh, by looking at the hope of the believer in verses 3 to verse 4. Verses 3 and verse 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. The first passage teaches us that because Jesus lives, believers have hope in their future. They have a secure salvation. Look at verse 3. This passage starts out by, by saying that, uh, that God is blessed. And one reason he is blessed is because he has caused, he has caused those who have faith in him to be born again in, in, in their faith. And Peter draws out two critical aspects of our rebirth, which really go hand in hand. We've been born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled and unfading. You see, the, the, the churches that Peter was writing to were experiencing suffering because of their faith in Christ. But they could still have hope in their suffering because of Christ's resurrection. Jesus also went through suffering. He shed his blood to pay for our sins, but following Jesus' death and burial, he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. He entered into glory. Those of you um, who are in Christ will go all the way 
um, the, will go the way of Christ as well. While, while we suffer now, like Christ, we will one day reach our heavenly home. We will enter into glory just like Christ did. And that's hope. That's where our hope is. And it's, it's a hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's, there's more to it. Right? Our hope comes from knowing we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This is speaking of eternal life and our heavenly home. And this inheritance is kept for believers. It is guarded for believers. In other words, what, what, what that means, that it is, it is secure. It is a secure inheritance that cannot be lost in this world as uh, parents we want to leave um, inheritances for our children we want to uh, we want them to be secure financially when we leave this world but even though we we we, we have those desires and we should have those desires we have no control um, of inflation, we have no control of that inheritance at the end of the day losing value. I know our brothers from, from Zim and I've heard stories um, can, can, can actually tell you how, how much they lost, how money um, at the end of the day became uh, worthless. But the inheritance that we have in Christ the inheritance that we have is unfading. The, the inheritance that we have is secure. It cannot be taken away. It, it cannot lose its value. There is nothing else in this world that is secure compared to the eternal inheritance that is ours through the resurrection. There, there are a lot of things in this world that are precious to us and for good reason. But only what we have in Christ will last. Everything else is perishable, defiled, and fading. And without Christ, everything else will leave us hopeless. But our inheritance in Christ is secure. And that security is what gives us hope. Now, the question is, have any of you ever had the experience of losing or breaking something that was precious to you? I'll never forget when uh, my wife lost all her data in her laptop because it was formatted or erased without her consent. Um, but in my defense, I thought there was not much on the laptop. But as it turns out, there was a lot of memories captured in pictures, captured in videos, a lot of her papers that she wrote um, uh, a while ago, but it was all gone, and it was precious to her. And so she, she kept telling me about how precious it was to her. It was gone. She lost it all just by one delete button. But it was not lasting. There's nothing wrong with having precious Possessions. There's nothing wrong with holding high possessions, positions in our jobs or being popular in our social setting. But we can't put our hope in these things because these things won't last. 
And my wife's story illustrates that. Right? The things of this world are not secure. Eventually they'll go down the toilet. They are perishable. They are defiled. They are fading. And anything that won't last can't give us true hope. When we put our hope in things that, that don't last, we have a false hope. The only hope that is true is the hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Christ. It can't be lost. Our eternal inheritance in Christ is imperishable. It is undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for those of you who have faith in Christ. Because he lives, believers have hope in their future. And that hope is secure. And this hope in the future should inform the way we live in the present. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And here's our second point. Because he lives, believers should have joy in their present temporary suffering. Because he lives, believers should have joy in their present temporary sufferings. It is clear that Peter's readers here were going through some type of suffering. What were the trials the believers in Peter's day were facing? What was it that was, um, you know, trying their faith? And, and, and as Peter writes to them, and, and as you're reading, you, you wonder how could they rejoice in the midst of these trials? As we answer these two questions, I think you'll see how relevant this passage is uh, for our lives. They were suffering persecution. Th that trial, that was their, their trial that they were experiencing. But, but their persecution wasn't like the later persecution under Nero. Remember the Emperor Nero, the Emperor of Rome, who uh, went all out against Christians and killed them and threw them to the lions uh, and opened the pregnant women. This was not... The, the, the persecution that uh, Peter is addressing here. They weren't being executed by the Roman government. But this was social persecution. Christians were being ostracized by non-Christians because they were Christians. They didn't hold to the values and priorities of their society, and so they were being ridiculed. Peter tells us throughout the letter that they were being reviled in chapter 2 verse 23. Enduring slender in chapter 2, verse 12. They were being insulted, chapter 3, verse 16. They were enduring reproach in chapter 4, verse 14. They were being mocked for being Christians and living like Christians. This was their trial. And I think we can relate. This ridicule had hidden a temptation in it, which we can also relate to. As his readers were being ridiculed for their for, for, for being Christian, there was a temptation in them to abandon their faith. And there was a temptation to start living like the world instead of living holy lives in this hard world. Peter knew this temptation all too well himself. Remember at Christ's crucifixion when he was asked if he was one of Jesus' disciples? When they asked him, what did he do? He folded like a cheap tent. 
right? He kept denying and denying and denying Christ. He, he understood this temptation as he's writing to these people who are going through this social trial, this social persecution. And, and, and he understood it very well. He could relate to them and he wanted his readers to stand firm in their trial and temptation. He wants to encourage them to stand strong. He wants to encourage them to be marked by joy in these trials. I mean, just think about it. Christians, from the beginning of, of, of the church, have been persecuted, have been ridiculed. In fact, the, the, the word Christian itself was used as a term for, of ridiculing Christians. The Bible tells us that Christian, they were first called Christians in Antioch. And, and, and the, the, the first people to use the word Christians to refer to the disciples of Christ were unbelievers. So they were not saying it in a way to honor these people. They were not saying it in a way to applaud these people. They were saying it in a way to ridicule them. And instead of that becoming something that discouraged the the disciples of Christ, it became something that they received as a badge of honor. They said, yes, we are Christians. Yes, we are followers of Christ. Yes, we identify with Christ. They didn't deny it. They didn't uh, seek to, 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 to divorce themselves away from, from, from this, uh, uh, this term, Christian. It is a term that we use gladly even today. But it was not used when the first time it was used to, to honor Christians or to you know, applaud Christians. So he wants his, his readers, he wants the, the people that he's writing to in the midst of this social persecution to not fold. He, he wants them to stand firm in the faith and continue being marked by hope and being marked by joy in the Lord. But the question is how could they avoid the temptation that comes through this trial? How could they stand firm in the gospel with joy? Well, the question is, they needed, the, the, the answer is, they needed a proper perspective. Uh, sometimes perspective helps, doesn't it? Think about um, Asaph in, in Psalm 73. Asaph, I, I don't know the time that he was living in, um, he, but what we see in Psalm 73 is that he is looking at the rich. He is looking at those who are well off uh, financially, how they are living lives that dishonor God, yet they continue to prosper. And, and this became a temptation to him. He says in Psalm 73, he says in verse, three, verse 1, truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. Verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, I almost left the faith 
when I looked at the wicked and how they were prospering in the faith, in in material things and material possessions. He says, I almost slipped away, but because God is good, he gave me a perspective. And this is how he got a perspective. We see it uh, in verse 17. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I descend their end. It is when he got perspective until he went to God, until God shaped his mind to think about these things. It is until he went to the word of God that his perspective was changed. He looked at things differently. Brothers and sisters, the point is, if we think like the world, if our minds are shaped by the values of the world, we won't have a good perspective when it comes to facing trials. We won't have a good perspective when it comes to being in need and, and want. But we need a proper perspective. In order to, to, to stand firm in the gospel with joy, we need a proper perspective. They needed to hear the well-known statement, no pain, no gain. Or better put, short-term pain, long-term gain. Peter doesn't use these words, obviously, uh, but this is basically what he's saying here. Only on an eternal scale. Look at verses 6 and verse 7. In this you rejoice, he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's argument runs through something like this. It is, it is necessary for us to experience the short-term pain of trials. They, they prove the genuineness of our faith. But our genuine faith is the guarantee of our future glorious salvation. That the long-term perspective of eternal glory should enable us to endure the short-term pain of trials with joy. Our eternal glory is greater than our present suffering. That's why we can rejoice now, short-term pain, long-term gain. That, that's the basic argument. But there's a little more to, to, to his argument. In verse 7, Peter uses the metaphor of fire and gold. It's a penetrating metaphor here. We, we are told that our faith is being tested like gold is tested by fire. Gold represents everything the world seeks in order to find true security and hope. But gold, like worldly things, won't last. It will perish. This is where the metaphor becomes penetrating. Gold will perish. And implied in this statement is the fact that anyone who trusts in things like gold will perish too. When we we come to the fire of God's judgment, only those who have placed their trust in Christ's death and resurrection will pass through those flames. Those who have trusted in anything else will not pass through the flames of God's judgment. Faith in Christ is more precious than gold. It won't perish. It will pass through the flames. It will carry us all the way to our imperishable inheritance. Do you follow Peter's reasoning here? 
when believers experience the fire of trials that comes because of, of their faith, they can rejoice. Going through the fire of trials is nothing compared with going through the fire of God's judgment. And the short-term pain of trials is nothing compared to the long-term gain of our salvation. This is the perspective that we need. These are momentary afflictions. They won't last. This perspective enables us to go through trials with joy, an inexpressible joy, a joy that's greater than our trials. A joy that is grounded in, in the resurrection. When, and we can say because he lives, we can endure ridicule with joy. Because he lives, we can continue in faith with joy. Because he lives, we can remain faithful with joy. The treasure of eternal life is far greater than all the treasures of this world. We, we may not have a, a respected uh, position in this world, but we have a place in heaven. We, we may not have all the possessions of this world, but we have a glorious inheritance. That's why we stand firm in the gospel, in the face of trials, with joy. If you believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, I have a question for you. What do you do when you face the kind of fire Peter speaks of here? Well, what do you do when you face the temptations that seek to derail your faith? When tempted by ridicule for being a Christian, there are probably three ways people respond. People respond in three ways. Either, either one of these three ways. The first is to actually fold like a cheap tent in the wind. To give up. We, we, we see this in the lives of many people who stop believing and leave the church or who would maybe still claim to believe but who just live like the world. The second way people respond to trials is to keep their tent up but for the wrong reason. These people toe the line and follow the rules grudgingly because that's just what you're supposed to do. They, they don't endure with the joy that is set before them. But that's not the response that is called for in this passage, is it? Thirdly, the third response, this is the one that's called for in this passage. To stand firm in the faith as believers with joy. You see, when you face trials... When you face temptation to embrace the world's way this week, as you most certainly will, what will you do? Temptations are bound to come, and they will come. They will come. The, the, the darts of temptation are always shooting at you at every corner. Temptation to be impatient temptation to be angry, temptation to sin uh, immorally, temptation to sin by lying. There are so many temptations that are coming your way. Temptation to sin by yelling at your children, yelling at your, uh, uh, at your spouse. And there are so many temptations that are coming your way. When you face these temptations, what will you do? Will the hope of the resurrection actually inform and change the way you live? 
or will it simply be a doctrine you affirm? Will it just be something that you say you believe? You see, who we are in, in Christ's death and resurrection should change the way we live. And because he lives, we can have joy and hope. And what about those of you who do not believe in the death and resurrection of Christ? What will you do when you face the fire of judgment? You need to know something. There is nothing in this world that this world can offer that will last. You also need to know that when you stand before a holy God, your good deeds will not save you. Right? The, the, the world believes that their good deeds will weigh against their bad deeds and God will look at their good deeds on a scale. Right? That, that their, their, their good deeds will weigh more and those will save them. But that is not in the Bible. That is not scriptural. It is simply not true. It is deceiving yourself. The Bible says, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In your sin, you are without hope and without God in the world, and you have no reason to rejoice. But you also need to know something else. There's good news. Christ's death and resurrection can give you hope and joy. Our salvation is not based on perishable, on perishable things like silver and gold. As precious as many things in this world are, it is only through the precious blood of Christ that we are saved from our sin. It is, he is the only one without sin and the only one able to save us from our sin. And it is only through the resurrection of Christ that we have hope. And this is the gospel. And this gospel is imperishable. If you repent of your sin and believe this gospel, you can have hope and joy. And I invite you to trust in Christ alone for salvation. Because he lives, we can face God's judgment with hope. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow with joy. And as the song says, life is worth living just because he lives. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, what a great joy it is indeed to, to know that we have Christ as our Lord that his death has taken our sins away from us as far as the east is from the west so far have you taken our sins away that your resurrection has made us right with you your resurrection has brought us close to the father and has given us titles of children of God. Thank you, Lord. May you work in our hearts to give us hope and joy as we think about the fact that Christ lives. He is not a dead Savior in a grave, but the grave is empty because the grave could not hold him. And for such we rejoice. He is risen indeed, and we can live because you live. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.